welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. December 2nd. I don't know about you, but I feel like I just celebrated the 4th of July. (laughs) You know, this week we were, um, the whole team was here to decorate the church for Christmas. Ta-da! Pretty good. Yeah. As, as the team were pulling out all the stuff, someone said, didn't we just put it away? So I've got a question for all of you. How many of you have your Christmas decorations up? Okay, when will you be available to come and help me? You know, let's talk on the patio and we'll schedule something, okay? And here we are, the first Sunday of Advent, a month where we turn our focus to the story of a baby, not just any baby, a very special baby, a time when we reflect on the circumstances of his conception, his parentage, his birth, and his first visitors. Beginning this morning, I'm going to focus on Isaiah's prophecies. Next Sunday, Pastor Luke will be sharing about Joseph and his obedience. Then Dr. Greg Ognam will be speaking on, um, on the 23rd, and he'll be, pardon me, on the 16th, and he'll be talking about Mary and, and her trust. And then we have a very special guest on Christmas Sunday, the 23rd. Dr. Dana Allen is the Synod Executive of our denomination of ECO. And um, it really is something great for us to have him here because he's like the big guy. He's like the head, head guy. And he's going to be here for Christmas Sunday speaking to us. December, celebrating Jesus in so many different ways. I don't know about you, but I wonder if you have a friend like mine. Her name is, well, you know, it really doesn't matter what her name is. Um, she actually lives not too far. Well, it probably doesn't really matter where she, where she lives. Um, actually, we used to work together at, well, you know, I guess it really doesn't matter where we worked. The truth is that she is probably one of the most hostile people I know about Christianity. She rather vociferously will say how much she hates Christians. And then she'll say, yeah, I really don't like Christians, but I like you. When we sometimes navigate into a conversation about Jesus, which is usually me bringing it up because I really care about her, she'll just shake her head and say, I can't believe that you actually believe the Bible is accurate and a truthful account of the life of Jesus. There seems to be this perception that when we are people of faith, we may be accused of turning our intellects and our reasons off as we take this gigantic leap that is totally disconnected with history. When the world thinks about people of faith, the connotation is perhaps that we have faith despite all the evidence to the contrary. Greg Kukul is a Christian apologetist with an organization called Stand to Reason, and he sums up this popular belief about faith in our culture. It is religious wishful thinking in which one squeezes out spiritual hope by intense acts of sheer will. People of faith believe the impossible. People of faith believe that which is contrary to fact. People of faith believe that which is contrary to evidence. People of faith ignore reality. 
I guess it shouldn't be a surprise to us that people roll their eyes when faith in Christ is mentioned. Biblical faith isn't believing against the evidence. Faith is defined in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the insurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The Greek word for faith is pistis, which means to be persuaded. Often other words used in Hebrew include hope, assurance, conviction, and confidence. Today, because we wholeheartedly believe that our faith is grounded on real evidence and an assurance that the whole story of Jesus is indeed true, we're going to look back at the Old Testament and consider the prophecies in Isaiah related to Jesus written hundreds of years before his birth. In his book, The Case for Christ, the author leads Strobel, who as the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune for many years, and once a very avowed atheist. He poses this question. Did Jesus, and Jesus alone, match the identity of the Messiah? To answer that question, Strobel takes a look at the significance of fingerprints evidence used to convict people of crimes. We all know that fingerprints are unique. Did you know that identical twins have the very same DNA, but their fingerprints are different? There is not one person on the planet who has the same fingerprints as we do. Many a crime has been solved through someone leaving evidence behind, their fingerprint or prints. If you're an NCS fan, or NCIS fan, when Abby says, I found a match, you know that the jig is up and the perpetrator of that crime has been identified. As we look this morning at the writings of the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, we find that these Jewish scriptures, there are so many major prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, a person who would redeem his people. These prophecies or predictions are in essence the fingerprint of only one person that it matches. In his book, Strobel introduces us to a man named Louis Lapides. Who is this guy, and what does his story have to do with Isaiah's prophecies? Louis was born into a Jewish family in New Jersey. He, as a young boy, had to study some of the scriptures in order to have his bar mitzvah. He remembers that their Jewish faith really didn't have any relevance to his day-to-day life. On Jewish high holy days, the family would go to an Orthodox synagogue because it was just the right thing to do. When he was questioned about his knowledge about Jewish belief regarding the coming Messiah, he admitted that it was never even considered. He also acknowledged that he never could figure out why Christians worshipped this guy Jesus with nails in his hands and feet. He figured that Jesus was God of the Gentiles, and really had no connection to the Jewish people. He was also brought up to believe that Gentiles and Christians were basically the same, and he considered the New Testament to be really a book in anti-Semitism, a book on how to hate Jews, how to perhaps even kill Jews, and he thought perhaps it was just a guidebook for the American Nazi society. He frankly admitted that growing up, he really thought Christians were enemies. In his late teens, Lewis's parents divorced, and it just rocked his world. He questioned what good religion was when it couldn't help people in practical ways. He said, 
I didn't feel I had a personal relationship with God. I had a lot of beautiful ceremonies and traditions, but he was the distant, detached God of Mount Sinai who said, here are the rules. You live by them. You'll be okay. I'll see you later. And there I was wondering, does God relate to my struggles? Does he care about me as an individual? Well, not in any way I could see. Lewis's story takes him to the jungles of Vietnam with the army. It be he there begins this spiritual quest. He investigates Hinduism, Buddhism, Scientology, and all of them he finds that nothing will satisfy the longing in his heart. And then he meets some Christians. When they talk about Jesus, he says, I'm a, I'm a Jew, I can't believe in Jesus. And then someone asks him a profound question that changed his life. Do you know the prophecies of the Messiah? His answer, I've never heard of them. The pastor offered him a Bible. He was obviously skeptical. Is the New Testament in there? The pastor nodded and suggested Lewis just read the Old Testament and ask the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, to show him if Jesus is the Messiah. This Christian asked Lewis to consider that Jesus was his Messiah, to understand that Jesus was Jewish and that he initially came to Jewish people. Lewis took the challenge. He opened a Bible to Genesis and began hunting for the fingerprints of Jesus. Among the words that were written hundreds of years before the Bethlehem birth of Christ to see if he could find any evidence that Jesus could possibly be who he claimed to be. Were there actually prophecies about Jesus fulfilled? So let's press pause for just a minute in Louis Lapidus' story and turn our attention to this whole understanding of prophecy, particularly in the book of Isaiah. Approximately 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah was commissioned by God to speak for God through a relationship with him. And in that relationship, Isaiah could reveal God's word to his people. Isaiah didn't have a crystal ball on his dining room table. God spoke to him. Prophecy or predictions throughout Isaiah and other prophetic writings addressed both the current condition among the people, especially as it related to their obedience, and it also pointed the future implications of that obedience or lack thereof. According to the commentator John Oswald in the New International Commentary on Isaiah, Prediction or prophecy had three main functions. It was a means to calling the people to obedience because obedience or disobedience would have future consequences. It was a means of encouraging faith. The God we serve cannot be surprised by events that happen. It served to confirm God's trustworthiness when the predicted events actually did occur. What did Isaiah predict about the Messiah? He told the people the manner of the Messiah's birth in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. The idea of God's being with his people is a prominent one in the Old Testament. From the Garden of Eden to Isaac, Joseph, Gideon, David, and so many others, it is the heart of God of God's presence with his people in the Old Testament. God is not a force. He's not a principle. He is a person, a person who desires 
to be present with his creation. And his presence brings protection. In the book of Joshua, right after the death of Moses, as the children of Israel were to enter the promised land, God said to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. The promised Messiah was God taking on himself our flesh. That's why Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah prophesied about light dawning. We read in chapter 9, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light shone. It is interesting that Jesus said, says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's turn in our Bibles right now, or if you have an app, to Isaiah 9, beginning at verse 6. That's on page 573 in your um, pew Bible. So Isaiah 9, beginning at verse 6, page 573. Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Jewish Messiah that we worshipped, prophesied about in the Old Testament, came into the world 2,000 years ago and will return to the world to establish his righteous kingdom on earth. In the Old Testament, Jesus was anticipated. In the New Testament, he is realized. God fulfilled his promise. This is why we make a really big deal about Christmas. Let's flip over to the New Testament. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. That's page 859 in the Pew Bible. So Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. And as was his custom, he, Jesus, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. There's no question in the New Testament that Jesus not only claimed to be the Messiah, but he also claimed to be God. I found this interesting quote from the writings of a guy named Philip Melfon. He was a contemporary of Martin Luther and one of the German reformers in the 1500s. This is what he wrote. Of the whole of scripture, there are two parts, the law and the gospel. The law indicates the sickness. The gospel gives the remedy. 
In other words, the law told us all about our sin and how far we are from God. The gospel tells us about a Savior and how near God is to us. In Hebrews 1, we read, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Let's get back to the story of Louis the Petes. He took that pastor's challenge and he began to read the Old Testament. And then he arrived at Isaiah chapter 53, the picture of a Messiah who would suffer and die for the sins of Israel and the world, all written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. So that's Isaiah 53. We'll begin in verse 3. And that's on page 613 in your pew Bible. So Isaiah 53, page 613. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now skip to the last verse in that chapter. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This was Jesus. This was the figure that Lewis had seen in Catholic churches he passed by. Whereas the Old Testament, um, one had to uh, atone for their sins through a sacrificial lamb or an animal. Jesus was the ultimate sacrificial lamb of God. He paid the sin once and for all. And one conclusion did Lewis make? Well, he decided that the Old Testament words of Isaiah had been changed by Christians, and so he wasn't going to buy it yet. And then he got himself a Jewish Bible. And what do you know? There were the same words. And as he read the multitude of prophecies to Je about Jesus, not just in Isaiah, but throughout the whole of the Old Testament, his skepticism began to evaporate. And he turned a page, and he began to read Matthew. What are the first verses? A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Like many before him who began an honest pursuit of Jesus, he couldn't put down the New Testament. He comments that he didn't find the contents to be a handbook for the Nazi party so much that Jesus was relating to a Jewish community. Yes, Lewis accepted Jesus as his Messiah, as his Savior. 
And for the first time, he reports that he felt whole. Lewis went on to attend Talbot Theological Seminary, getting master's degrees in divinity and theology. He became a pastor, a seminary professor, and he is a prolific author. Yeah, it's a pretty fascinating story, but so what? What is the significance of each one of us sitting here this morning? Because our faith, our beliefs, our understanding of whose birth we celebrate every single year at Christmas is grounded on absolute truth that Jesus was who he claimed to be. It was indeed Jesus who was born of a virgin who fulfilled 100% of the prophecies related not just to his birth, but to all of the circumstances of his life. We've only looked at Isaiah. The fingerprints of Jesus are sprinkled throughout the Old Testament prophecies. God's word is trustworthy. Our religion isn't about trying to figure out God. He is with us. He is in us. All of the promises we read in the Bible are for us. It isn't our truth. It is the truth. If you find yourself sometimes doubting when perhaps questions creep in, or maybe you're here this morning and you do have questions, may your confidence in God's word be affirmed. It is historically accurate. Jesus was the Messiah sent to rescue us from the penalty of sin. He wasn't the conquering Messiah who the people of Israel were expecting at the time of his birth and who they longed for, the Messiah who would rescue them from the tyranny of Roman occupation. No, he had a different mission then, and he accomplished it on the cross, and then Christ rose again. During the season of Advent, we look back and reflect on the prophecies concerning his coming, and we look forward to his second coming that is prophesied in the New Testament. He promised that he would return, and he keeps his word. Oh, what hope we have. Will you bow with me in prayer? Thank you, Jesus. The foundation of our faith, our confidence, our absolute assurance is that you did indeed come as promised throughout the Old Testament. You are our Messiah. You rescued us from the penalty of sin because you loved us so very much. We receive the gift of salvation by grace, and we are recipients of your mercy. May our confidence in the gospel story be strengthened when we observe your fingerprints all over the Old Testament. Jesus, we love you. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.